Hey, it's Guy here. So what if I told you that every single living organism makes a sound from viruses to giant whales? They all make sounds. And not only sounds, but connected sounds, patterns that make up nature's soundscape. Well, on this episode, we explore the amazing ways nature makes order in our world. It's called Everything is Connected, and it originally aired in September of 2013. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. And today's show is about how everything is connected, how teeny, tiny, almost imperceptible changes to our natural world can have a profound impact on everything within it, even us. And today we're going to hear from TED speakers who will explain why every flower, every insect, every animal, even every sound has a very specific, very crucial role in keeping it all in balance. We're going to start with a story about wolves, which is the sound we're all enjoying at the moment. Anyway, a few years ago, the British writer and environmentalist George Monbiot got really into them, into wolves. And it happened in the middle of a midlife crisis. And I'd like to point out that I didn't buy a motorbike. I bought a sea kayak. This is George. Um, I found myself, as, as I got older, just scratching at the walls of it, not, not feeling that I was sufficiently exercised that I had so many faculties which weren't being used. I was, I believe, ecologically bored. This is the opening from his TED Talk. And it was only when I stumbled across an unfamiliar word that I began to understand what I was looking for. And as soon as I found that word, I realised that I wanted to devote much of the rest of my life to it. The word is rewilding. So this is where the wolves come in. Because at the time, George wanted to figure out why so many gray wolves had been hunted and killed to near extinction in North America, and how we turned them into these terrifying monsters. That's why there's all these stories about werewolves and all those Grimm's fairy tales about wolves adopting human clothes and deceiving people. It's because they are like us. They've got the same sort of social intelligence. And they look at you as if they can read your thoughts. And in fact, to an extent, they can. That's why we domesticated them. That's why dogs are so useful to us, because they can read our thoughts. They understand what we want them to do. And what we wanted the wolves to do? To take part in an experiment, an experiment to repopulate Yellowstone National Park. So in 1995, They were quietly reintroduced there. George picks up the story from here in his TED Talk. Before the wolves turned up, they'd been absent for 70 years. That The numbers of deer, because there was nothing to hunt them, had built up and built up in the Yellowstone Park. And despite efforts by humans to control them, they'd managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to almost nothing. They'd just grazed it away. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, they started to have the most remarkable effects. First, of course, they killed some of the deer, but that wasn't the major thing. Much more significantly, they radically changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, particularly the valleys and the gorges. And immediately, those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. Bare valley sides quickly became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, the birds started moving in. The number of songbirds and migratory birds started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase because beavers like to eat the trees. 
Beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. They create niches for other species. And the dams they built in the rivers um, provided habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes. And as a result of that, the number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which meant more hawks, more weasels, more foxes, more badgers. Ravens and bald eagles came down to feed on the carrion that the wolves had left. Bears fed on it too, and their population began to rise as well, partly also because there were more berries growing on the regenerating shrubs. And the bears reinforced the impact of the wolves by killing some of the calves of the deer. But here's where it gets really interesting. The wolves changed the behaviour of the rivers. They began to meander less. There was less erosion. The channels narrowed. More pools formed. More riffle sections, all of which were great for wildlife habitats. The rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason was that the regenerating forests stabilised the banks so that they collapsed less often, so that the rivers became more fixed in their course. So the wolves, small in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of the Yellowstone National Park, this huge area of land, but also its physical geography. Whales in the Southern Oceans have similarly wide-ranging effects. One of the many post-rational excuses made by the Japanese government for killing whales is that they said, well, the number of fish and krill will rise and then there'll be more for people to eat. Well, it's a stupid excuse, but it sort of kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because you'd think whales eat huge amounts of fish and krill, so obviously take the whales away, there'll be more fish and krill. But the opposite happened. You take the whales away, and the number of krill collapses. Why would that possibly have happened? Well, it now turns out that the whales are crucial to sustaining that entire ecosystem. And one of the reasons for this is that they often feed at depth, and then they come up to the surface and produce what biologists politely call large fecal plumes. Huge explosions of poop right across the surface waters, up in the photic zone where there's enough light to, to allow photosynthesis to take place. And that, those great plumes of fertilizer stimulate the growth of phytoplankton, the plant plankton at the bottom of the food chain, which stimulate the growth of zooplankton, which feed the fish and the krill and all the rest of it. Uh, and when you look at it like that, you think, Wait a minute, here are the wolves changing the physical geography of the Yellowstone National Park. Here are the whales changing the composition of the atmosphere. You begin to see that possibly the evidence supporting James Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis, which conceives of the world as a coherent, self-regulating organism, is beginning at the ecosystem level to accumulate. And they make, in my view, a powerful case for the reintroduction of missing species. Rewilding, to me, means bringing back some of the missing plants and animals. It means taking down the fences, it means blocking the drainage ditches, it means preventing commercial fishing in some large areas of sea, but otherwise, stepping back. It lets nature decide, and nature, by and large, is pretty good at deciding. It's interesting because your idea sounds um, almost primitive, but it requires a great deal of sort of technological know-how and thought, I guess, to make mm. it work, right? Yes, it's interesting, this association with primitivism, because I actually, I see rewilding as being very much a project about the future, whereas conservation in many parts of the world is about the past, trying to lock in past ecosystems, and rather than with rewilding is to say, let's bring back a lot of exciting keystone species and then stand back and see what happens. Um, but I, I think it's far from being a primitive project. It's a very modern project and, and I, I think a, a thrilling one. 
It's it's easy for us to forget that you know we're just participants in a system, right? Rather than than the center of it. Mm, that's right. We we have this very anthropocentric worldview, but um, I would like us to be able to show a bit more humility, really, and allow us to make space for nature to create some scope for other species to flourish rather more than they do at the moment. So George Bombia doesn't think that we should just do things like put wolves back in Yellowstone or help whales keep control over the oceans. Perhaps we should also start thinking about the return of some of our lost megafauna. What megafauna, you say? Well, every continent had one, apart from Antarctica. When, when Trafalgar Square in London was excavated, the river gravels there were found to be stuffed with the bones of Hippopotamus, rhinos, elephants, hyenas, lions. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, there were lions in Trafalgar Square long before Nelson's Column was built. <laughs> All these species lived here in the last interglacial period, when, when temperatures were pretty similar to our own. It's not climate, largely, which has, which has got rid of the world's megafaunas. It's pressure from the human population hunting and destroying the habitats which, which has done so. But, but you're not talking about like bringing lions back to Britain, right? It may require a little public persuasion. The, 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 <laughs> the clamor for the lion's reintroduction has so far been muted. Um, but in Europe, there are huge areas which are now being vacated by farmers. And one estimate suggests that by 2030, we're looking at 30 million hectares, which is an area the size of Poland. And what are we going to do with that land? Well, I say let's create some really big national parks and let's repopulate them with our missing megafauna. Let's bring back the lions. Let's bring back the hyenas and the hippos. And they might also, they might also provide some extra protection for species which are under serious trouble in the places where, where, where they live at the moment. And um, maybe this would give them uh, an extra chance of survival. Why not reintroduce some of our lost megafauna, or at least species closely related to those which have become extinct everywhere? Why shouldn't all of us have a Serengeti on our doorsteps? And perhaps this is the most important thing that rewilding offers us, the most important thing that's missing from our lives. Hope. In motivating people to love and defend the natural world, an ounce of hope is worth a ton of despair. The story rewilding tells us is that ecological change need not always proceed in one direction. It offers us a hope that our silent spring could be replaced by a raucous summer. Thank you. George Mombiad, his book about rewilding is called Feral, and his entire TED Talk is at ted.npr.org. Our show today, Everything is Connected. I'm Guy Raz. More TED Radio Hour in a moment from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to WordPress.com. WordPress.com offers e-commerce options that range from an effective buy button to a complete online store, as well as code-free site building, so you don't need a professional designer to get your website up and running. If you need help, WordPress has a customer support team that is available 24-7. Learn more and get 15% off any new plan purchase at wordpress.com slash radio hour. Thanks also to ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and waiting for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter can help. Their technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com hour. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. 
And just one more thing before we get back to the show. If you know a curious kid between the ages of 5 and 10, then you should tell them about NPR's podcast for kids. It's called Wow in the World. It's about science, wonder, and all the amazing discoveries happening in the world around us. And it's hosted by me and Mindy Thomas. And now we're back with all new episodes. You can find Wow in the World at NPR One at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and the show today, how small, subtle changes in nature can throw its whole balance into a freefall, how everything is connected. And for Jane Pointer, at one point in her life, everything depended on those connections working, It was when she was in her mid-twenties and living under glass. You must have had, like, mixed feelings about that. Mixed feelings in what way? I don't know. The outside world and and the idea that you were almost like in a zoo. I liked seeing people looking through the windows. The one time, however, that it was very intrusive was when people knocked on the glass. You'd be working away, and all of a sudden you'd hear this banging on the glass. And you'd look up, and all of a sudden all of these cameras would pick up and click, 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 click. Okay, so you may remember this. This was the ultimate group house. It was called Biosphere 2. And it was like a giant glass terrarium in the middle of the Arizona desert. It's actually still there. Anyway, Jane and seven other researchers wanted to see if they could sustain themselves for two years, farming their own food, recycling their own waste, breathing only the air inside that sealed biosphere, and all under the condition that they would not leave. Here's Jane Pointer from the TED stage. So Biosphere 2 was essentially a three-acre, entirely sealed miniature world that I lived in for two years and 20 minutes. And... So we had our own miniature rainforest, a private beach with a coral reef. We had a savanna, a marsh, a desert. We had our own half-acre farm that we had to grow everything. And of course, we had our human habitat where we lived. Back in the mid-80s, when we were designing Biosphere 2, we had to ask ourselves some pretty basic questions. I mean, what is a biosphere? And so, well, we decided that what it really is, is that it is entirely materially closed, that is, nothing goes in or out at all, no material, and energetically open, which is essentially what planet Earth is. And by 1991, we finally had this thing built, and it was time for us to go in and give it a go. We needed to know, can you take this biosphere that has evolved on a planetary scale and jam it into a little bottle, and will it survive? Big questions. And we wanted to know this both for being able to go somewhere else in the universe. If we were going to go to Mars, for instance, would we take a biosphere with us to live in it? We also wanted to know so that we could understand more about the Earth that we all live in. So, like, how long before you realize that that everything inside of that place was, you know, was connected. Very quickly. uh, The most profound experience I had in the biosphere was the experience of not only being completely dependent on my biosphere, but being absolutely a part of my biosphere in a very literal way. I mean, as I walked through the biosphere, I was incredibly conscious of the fact that the plants surrounding me, we were providing me with the oxygen that I needed to breathe and that I was providing them some of the CO2 they needed to grow. When I breathed out, my CO2 fed the sweet potatoes that I was growing. And we ate an awful lot of sweet potatoes. (laughs) And those sweet potatoes became part of me. In fact, we ate so many sweet potatoes, I became orange with sweet potato. I literally was eating the same carbon over and over again. I was eating myself in some strange sort of bizarre way. Here I am inside Biosphere 2 making a pizza. So I am harvesting the wheat in order to make the dough. And then, of course, I have to milk the goat and feed the goats in order to make the cheese. It took me four months in Biosphere 2 to make a pizza. Here in Biosphere 1, well, it takes me about two minutes because I pick up the phone and I call and say, hey, can you deliver the pizza? Like, you really know how to make a pizza. 
Oh, I really know how to make from a pizza. The, from the ground up. <laughs> but boy, do you appreciate that pizza. <laughs> Um, but I mean, it was just—it wasn't like just goats that you were milking, right? I mean, there were there were other animals, other species in there, right? We had the domestic animals uh, played a rather fun role. We had chickens, goats, and pigs, and you know, we didn't really need animals in there. We could have had a vegetarian diet, but um, the domestic animals were in there because when you grow agricultural products, there's a lot of it that humans can't eat. So, like, there's all of these beautiful greens that we can't eat, and they're extremely high protein for goats. So they would eat all of the greens and produce milk for us. Then, aside from all the domestic animals, um, 250 species of insects were put inside there. Uh, there were numerous lizards and garter snakes and tortoises. So we really were trying to recreate many aspects of the ecosystem. There were fairly small ecosystems, so we couldn't have large ungulates roaming across our savanna. So we had to play those roles by harvesting the grass and that kind of thing. But the animals played an extremely important role in, in the ecological cycling. I mean, it sounds, it sounds amazing, but you know, there were things that just didn't, didn't work. Really, almost every aspect of the biosphere worked but one, which was a very important aspect of the biosphere, but what boiled down to a very simple design flaw. Because it turned out that we were losing oxygen, quite a lot of oxygen. We had lost seven tons of oxygen and we had no clue where it was. And you, we had sleep apnea at night, so you'd wake up gasping with breath because that's your, your blood chemistry's changed and that you literally do that. You stop breathing and then you And everybody outside thought we were dying. I mean, the media was making it sound like we were dying and I had to call up my mother every other day saying, no, mom, it's fine, fine, we're fine. And the doctor was in fact checking us to make sure we were in fact fine. But in fact, he was the person that was most susceptible to the oxygen. And one day he couldn't add up a line of figures and it was time for us to put oxygen in. And we did indeed find it and we found it in the concrete. Essentially, it had done something very simple. We had put too much carbon in the soil in the form of compost. It broke down, it took oxygen out of the air, put CO2 into the air and it went into the concrete. Pretty straightforward, really. So you might think, well, Boy, your life support system was failing you. Wasn't that dreadful? Yes. In a sense, it was terrifying, except that I knew that I could walk out the airlock door at any time if it really got bad. Though who was going to say, I can't take it anymore? Not me, that was for sure. And, and things really did go bad inside Biosphere 2. They got the oxygen sorted out, but they lost all this weight because they couldn't grow enough food. And then they started to argue about how to run things. And the connections between them started to break down. We really struggled with our interpersonal relationship. So there's no question. And it was painful. It, you know, in some circumstances could have been dangerous. It definitely reduced the creativity with which we addressed our challenges that we had in the biosphere. Though we still did come together and manage the biosphere and we did complete the two years. It just made it so much harder. I mean, despite all those, those problems, there's almost like a lazy narrative, you know, that came out of Biosphere 2 that it was like this total debacle that, you know, you, it was a total failure. But the actual truth is that, is that it spawned hundreds of like research papers and we learned a lot from it, right? Yeah. I, gosh, there's so much to say about that. I mean, the science that came out of Biosphere 2 was really extraordinary. Um, you've probably heard of the souring seas where we have the acidification of the ocean, which is, you know, really beginning to cause havoc around the world in our coral reefs and other parts of our ecosystems within the ocean. And Biosphere 2 was really the, the first time that that was quantified in the little miniature ocean inside Biosphere 2. That's that is so cool. I mean, do you when you look back at that time, do you sort of think about how the, the things that you did out there really, really kind of apply to, 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 to how how we live here in, on Earth? What I think about is that we are part of a biosphere. You know, in, in Biosphere 2, the health of our biosphere was something that we could look at moment to moment. We looked at the CO2 on a daily basis, sometimes on an hourly basis, seeing it going up and going down. And we 
attempted to manage those levels of CO2 within our biospheres actively, and it was very immediate. And the challenge that we have in Biosphere 1, the Earth, is that very often the kinds of challenges we're looking at are not immediate. They're things that happen over decades, maybe over a hundred years. The Industrial Revolution and Prometheus has given us this, the ability to light up the world. It has also given us this, the ability to look at the world from the outside. And if you lose where you are in your biosphere or are perhaps having a difficulty connecting with where you are in the biosphere, I would say to you, take a deep breath. The yogis had it right. Breath does in fact connect us all in a very literal way. Take a breath now. And as you breathe, think about what is in your breath. There perhaps is the CO2 from the person sitting next door to you. Maybe there's a little bit of oxygen from some algae on the beach not far from here. It also connects us in time. There may be some carbon in your breath from the dinosaurs. There could also be carbon that you are exhaling now that will be in the breath of your great, great, great grandchildren. Jane Pointer. She now runs a company that designs products for extreme environments like space. You can hear her full talk at TED.com. And by the way, Biosphere 2 is still out there in the Arizona desert. No one lives there, but they're still doing research and still giving tours. Do, do you ever go back? Oh, yes. I love going to the Biosphere. And of course, when people come to Tucson, friends, family, colleagues always want to go up there. Even though we were in there 20 years ago, yeah. it is still an astounding building to go and see. I'm assuming you don't have to pay admission, right? <laughs> no, I don't have to pay admission. I, I think I would go to say I have a lifetime pass. You know what I was just doing? I was watching the opening scene of Apocalypse Now. Oh, for heaven's sakes. Yeah. What What made you do that? Because the helicopter. Oh. That helicopter. You did that helicopter sound. Uh, guilty as charged. That's like iconic. That was you. Uh, yes, sir. This is Bernie Krauss. How did you record that sound? I uh, did it on a Moog Model 3 synthesizer. So that was not a helicopter? That part was done on a Moog, and I did about a third of the score on a Moog. Back in the 1960s and 70s, Bernie Krauss was a musician, and he was an early pioneer of the Moog synthesizer. We worked with almost every major artist that you could name uh, in the 60s and early 70s. Van Morrison, George Harrison, The Birds, and of course, The Doors. This is the end, beautiful friend. The, the problem was I was fired eight times on that whole thing. Each time I was hired back, I got double the amount of money. So um, Apocalypse now helped fund my life since. Right after that film, I quit music and Hollywood and went back to school and got my Ph.D. in bioacoustics. So I'm very grateful to Francis for this. For firing you eight times. Yeah, I wished he'd fired me ten more. <laughs> I'd add it to my resume. So that was also the end of Bernie Krause's music career and the beginning of Bernie Krause, the bioacoustician. Which means that I record the sounds of animals, all kinds of organisms, from viruses to large whales. And Bernie has recorded literally thousands of hours of tape in wild habitats all over the world. And somewhere along the way, he came up with a revolutionary idea that these sounds aren't just random, that they're all connected and they're trying to tell us something. So he started to listen even closer. Every living organism has its own unique signature. Uh, your voice is very different from mine. The sound of a bird sounds different from a lion. And all of the sound that reaches our ears at a certain point is called the soundscape. And the soundscape has three basic sources to it. So here's Bernie's explanation of the soundscapes on the TED stage. And a quick note, 
All of the natural sounds you will hear are sounds that Bernie actually recorded. The first is the geophony, or the non-biological sounds that occur in any given habitat, like wind in the trees, water in a stream, waves at the ocean shore, movement of the earth. The second of these is the biophony. And the biophony is all of the sound that's generated by organisms in a given habitat. And the third is all of the sound that we humans generate that's called anthropony. Some of it is controlled, like music or theater, but most of it is chaotic and incoherent, which some of us refer to as noise. Is there a pattern? Is it just sort of chaos? Or, or is it almost like, a, like a, a symphony, like an orchestra? Well, what I've found is, is that in habitats that are pretty much untouched, the sound is organized and structured in such a way so that each critter establishes this bandwidth. Think of it as niches or, or television channels. The choruses in that healthy habitat went like this. First, the insects establish their acoustic territory within the frequency spectrum. And then the reptiles and the amphibians join the chorus, establishing other niches. Then come the birds. And finally, the mammals. So that if one of those elements, one of those hundreds of elements, is somehow compromised, it changes the whole structure of that uh, niche. So these sounds can be disrupted by anything. They'd be disrupted by human footsteps. They could be disrupted by the presence of a, uh, a predator. And it's a very fragile moment. So, so by listening closely, you, you can actually hear whether something's missing. Yes. You can tell how that habitat is faring and whether it's healthy. When I began recording... I could record for 10 hours and capture one hour of usable material, good enough for an album or a film soundtrack or a museum installation. Now, because of global warming, resource extraction, and human noise, among many other factors, it can take up to 1,000 hours or more to capture the same thing. Fully 50% of my archive comes from habitats so radically altered that they're either altogether silent or can no longer be heard in any of their original form. Wow, half of that. I mean, there are sounds in your archive that don't exist anymore because those species aren't around. That's correct. It's like, it's like taking out of the human musical repertoire everything that Mozart ever wrote. It's at that level. I mean, that's... That's shocking. I mean, that, that tells us that something is messed up. We are suffering from this collective mass hysteria of trying to get every last resource either out of the earth or off the planet. So we're losing this natural soundscape, this, this signature voice of the natural world that so informs us. You know, if you're a religious person, this may be the last chance to hear the voice of the divine, because to me, that's as close as we're ever going to get. In a moment, some of those disappearing sounds from Bernie Krause's archive. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Save time and money by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desk or phone. Get the free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, at netsuite.com NPR. Thanks also to the United States Postal Service. It's important to know when your packages and letters are on their way. With informed delivery notifications from the United States Postal Service, you'll get an email every morning telling you what's coming to your mailbox. 
It's time to get peace of mind. Download the app or sign up now for free at informeddelivery.com. Informed delivery, if it's in the mail, it's in your email. Hey, before we get back to the show, just wanted to let you know that TED Radio Hour has been nominated for a Webby Award. It's kind of like the People's Choice Award for digital content. And just like those awards, you get to vote for us. So please vote. Do it now. It's easy. Go to vote.webbyawards.com and then search for TED Radio Hour and then cast your vote. Vote Vote.webbyawards.com. And thanks. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on today's show, nature's delicate balance. Why every flower, every animal, and as Bernie Krause says, every single sound is connected. So for decades, Bernie's been recording wild habitats all over the world, including in an area called Lincoln Meadow. It's in the Sierra Nevada mountains in Northern California. In 1988, a logging company convinced local residents that there'd be absolutely no environmental impact from a new method they were trying called selective logging, taking out a tree here and there rather than clear-cutting a whole area. With permission granted to record both before and after the operation, I set up my gear and got this wonderful, rich recording in the spring of 1988. There were probably... 10 species of birds at that particular moment that we've identified. A year later, I went back and using the same protocols and under the same exact conditions, uh, recorded again and captured the biophony as it existed after selective logging. And the difference is profound the richness, the density, and diversity of the biophony is gone. And I've been back 15 times since, and it hasn't returned to anything like it was in the 70s and 80s, even now. It's incredible. It's unmistakable. And what, what happened to those birds? I mean, did they go somewhere else? Did they die? Maybe there wasn't enough food. Maybe there wasn't enough uh, nesting area or places where the birds felt safe. And so they just migrated to another place. In your talk, you um, you tell another story about these toads, spadefoot toads, and where they live. Yes, the spadefoot toads are all over the American West. At the end of their breeding cycle, they dig themselves down about, oh, a yard under the surface, And uh, they can stay wrapped in this cocoon that they weave around themselves. And when there's enough moisture in the soil, the frogs will dig themselves to the surface and gather in large numbers around these vernal pools where they vocalize in a pulsating synchronicity with one another. And they do this for actually several reasons. The first is they're looking for mates, of course. And the second is they do this as a protective cover because if they're all vocalizing together and chorusing at the same time with the same synchronicity, it makes it really difficult for predators like foxes or coyotes or owls to come in and pick off any individual. Mono Lake is just to the east of Yosemite National Park in California. And it's a favorite habitat of these toads, and it's also favored by U.S. Navy jet pilots who train in their fighters, flying them at speeds exceeding 1,100 kilometers an hour and altitudes only a couple of hundred meters above ground level of the Mono Basin, so loud that the anthropony, the human noise, even though it's six and a half kilometers from the frog pond, it masked the sound of the chorusing toads. Now, at the end of that flyby, it took the frogs fully 45 minutes to regain their chorusing synchronicity, during which time, and under a full moon, we watched as two coyotes and a great horned owl came in to pick off a few of their numbers. The good news is that with a little bit of habitat restoration and fewer flights, 
The frog populations, once diminishing during the 1980s and early 90s, have pretty much returned to normal. Biophonies and geophonies are the signature voices of the natural world, and as we hear them, we're endowed with a sense of place, the true story of the world we live in. In a matter of seconds, a soundscape reveals much more information from many perspectives. And while a picture may be worth a thousand words, a soundscape is worth a thousand pictures. They're constantly communicating with us. I mean, all these animals are, are communicating with each other and, and sort of sending us messages as well. Yeah, and it's just like a Rosetta Stone. We've got to figure out what this narrative, this natural soundscape, these biophonies and geophonies are telling us. And that's the lesson that we have to learn yet, because I suspect that the purpose is survival, that the purpose is to thrive. What can we do now to, to start to fix it? All we have to do is be quiet. The more quiet we are and the more humble we are in the face of our experience with the natural world and stop trying to overcome it and dominate it, the more we're going to find a healthy coexistence with it. Bernie Krauss, he's the author of the recent book called The Great Animal Orchestra. Check out his full talk at ted.npr.org. How much time do you spend with with bees, like, on average every day? Not enough. These days, much of my time is spent in my office writing grant proposals or going to meetings or radio interviews. (laughs) (laughs) This is Marla Spivak. She's a scientist at the University of Minnesota. And I study bees. Do you think that a part of you um, uh, thinks like, like a bee? (laughs) I have to think like a bee. I had a mentor, one of my first mentors, used to scream at me that I needed to think like a bee. He'd say, you're thinking like a human. You have to stop that. You have to think like a bee in order to be a good beekeeper and a good bee researcher. (laughs) What what does that feel like? What does it feel like to think like a bee? Well, it's a wonderful world out there, really. I mean, they're quite respectful and responsive to environment, much, much more so than humans are. You know, they're very busy all the time. They don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about thinking like people do. That kind of reflective thinking that humans do often, I think, gets in the way. Here's more on bees from Marla's TED Talk. Bees are the most important pollinators of our fruits and vegetables and flowers and crops like alfalfa hay that feed our farm animals. More than one-third of the world's crop production is dependent on bee pollination. In parts of the world where there are no bees, people are paid to do the business of pollination by hand. Tomato growers often pollinate their tomato flowers with a handheld tomato tickler. this This is because... (laughs) The pollen within a tomato flower is held very securely within the male part of the flower, the anther. And the only way to release this pollen is to vibrate it. So bumblebees are one of the few kinds of bees in the world that are able to hold on to the flower and vibrate it. And they do this by shaking their flight muscles at a frequency similar to the musical note C. So they vibrate the flower, they sonicate it. Pollen gathers all over the fuzzy bee's body, and she takes it home as food. Tomato growers now put bumblebee colonies inside the greenhouse to pollinate the tomatoes because they get much more efficient pollination when it's done naturally, and they get better quality tomatoes. And cucumbers too, right? Cucumbers most definitely. All of the vine crops, squash, pumpkins, cucumbers, etc. So melons too, I guess. Of course, melons. 
Yeah. Uh, carrot snow. You know, if you plant a carrot, you plant a seed. And in order to get that seed, it must be pollinated by bees. Wow. Bees are vital to the pollination and production of our fruits and vegetables. And even coffee that we drink, we depend on them quite a bit. Unfortunately, they're all in trouble. Seven years ago, when honeybee colonies were reported to be dying in mass, first in the United States, it was clear that there was something really, really wrong. In the United States, bees, in fact, have been in decline since World War II. And the reason is, after World War II, we changed our farming practices. We stopped planting cover crops, clover and alfalfa. Clover and alfalfa are highly nutritious food plants for bees. And after World War II, we started using herbicides to kill off the weeds in our farms. Many of these weeds are flowering plants that bees require for their survival. And we started growing larger crop monocultures. The very farms that used to sustain bees are now agricultural food deserts dominated by one or two plant species like corn and soybeans. And then there's pesticides. After World War II, we started using pesticides on a large scale, and this became necessary because of the monocultures that put out a feast for crop pests. Recently, researchers from Penn State University have started looking at the pesticide residue in the loads of pollen that bees carry home as food, and they found that every batch of pollen that a honeybee collects has at least six detectable pesticides in it. This small bee is holding up a large mirror. How much is it going to take to contaminate humans? And it's not hard to imagine how that could happen, and, and on a massive scale. Every year, the vast majority of honeybees in the U.S. wind up in one single place to do one thing. One of the biggest crops that relies on honeybee pollination, in fact, is 100% dependent on bees to have a crop, is almonds. So we grow about 800,000 acres of almonds in the Central Valley of California. And the almond growers require 1.6 million colonies of honeybees at the end of February when the almonds bloom. So three quarters of all the honeybee colonies in, in America are right there in this like small patch of land in, in central California. Yes, and they're all piled in there. And, it, and this is true for many other crops, apples, blueberries, squash. Bees need to be trucked in to satisfy the pollination requirement, and then they have to be trucked out because of the pesticide applications or because the area can't support that many bee colonies. Do we know how many colonies are dying every year? Well, if there's 2 million colonies of bees and 30% die every year, you do the math. That's a lot. But how is that sustain? I mean, how is that going to work? I mean, that do the math and, and wow. I mean, in just a few years, they're all going to be gone? No, because the beekeepers are replacing their losses every spring. For example, let's say I'm a commercial beekeeper and I have 5,000 colonies of bees, which is not that unusual for a commercial beekeeper, and I lose 30% of them. Well, come spring, I need 5,000 colonies again in order to satisfy the pollination contracts I have with growers. And so I take my remaining colonies and I split them in two and I purchase a new queen bee and put it in half. And so I try to get my numbers back up to 5,000 so that I can supply the nation with fruits and vegetables and honey. Hey, can you help me understand just uh, just like how fragile the situation is? I mean, I, I mean, I can still go to, to to the grocery store and buy fruits and vegetables that you know, and and and, and almonds are are available and they're plentiful. They're um, all of those fruits and vegetables are plentiful and available because beekeepers are out there doing everything they can to pollinate crops, and this is worldwide. It's a very big struggle for them to replace their losses. So other crops get, you know, subsidies and insurance and, and help when they lose their crop. But beekeepers are on their own, and so it's a big struggle to keep the numbers of honeybee colonies up in the United States. 
Okay, so you may be asking yourself, what can we do? I mean, there's the obvious stuff, be smarter about agriculture, fewer herbicides and pesticides, but Marla Spivak says the most effective solution could also be the simplest one, flowers. So last summer I burned off my front lawn, and this summer it's a flowering meadow, and it's wonderful. I stand out there and watch the bees. I don't know what my neighbors think, but... Um, I love it. Wait a minute. So you, do the you, bees. You burned your, your, your lawn? You, like, torched it? <laughs> yeah, I sure did. It was a great moment in history for me. <laughs> Wait, how did you do that? Uh, well, you let the grass die, or you kill off the grass, and then you light a match to it. Now, I'm in Minnesota where there's a lot of water. There's no fire danger. And is it, like, wild growing all over the place, or is there sort of some method to the madness? Oh, it's pretty wild. <laughs> and do your neighbors complain? Like, are they, are they expecting, like, a rusted, you know, car in front of your house as well? <laughs> Probably. In fact, last year I went canoeing and came home, and I had a citation from the city of St. Paul saying, hey, mow this lawn. But, <laughs> but what I did instead is put up a big sign that says pollinator habitat. And now already this summer, you know, neighbors have come over and saying, wow, this is actually turning pretty. You know, it's got a lot of flowers in it. And next year and next year, it'll be prettier and prettier as we go. So, wow. Did you pay the uh, citation? Absolutely not. <laughs> Maybe it seems like a really small countermeasure to a big, huge problem. Just go plant flowers. But when bees have access to good nutrition, we have access to good nutrition through their pollination services. Every one of us needs to behave a little bit more like a bee society, where each of our individual actions can contribute to a grand solution, an emergent property, that's much greater than the mere sum of our individual actions. So let the small act of planting flowers and keeping them free of pesticides be the driver of large-scale change. On behalf of the bees, thank you. Marla Spivak is a scientist at the University of Minnesota. And please do it for Marla. Do it for the bees. Go plant some flowers. Keep it all connected. And check out Marla's talk at TED.com. Every robin is my brother They sing their songs to me The tiny black-eyed daisies The mighty redwood tree They're all my family Thanks for listening to our show this week. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Sanaz Meshkanpour, and Neva Grant, with help from Daniel Shukin, Portia Robertson-Migas, and Eric Newsom. Our partners at TED include Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Mother Nature and Farm.